0: Good morning, church. Morning. Uh, my name is Joel Davis. I am the associate pastor for yeah, all right. Thank you for community groups and discipleship training. So I actually, I have free hugs for anybody that can remember that title this time next week. I don't have anything financial, monetary, anything substantive to give you, but I've got a free hug if you can remember the title of my name, because I had to write it down myself. But uh, we are studying today, we're continuing our series on the Psalm and the Psalmist. But before we get to our Psalm, uh, Psalm 51 today, would you turn in your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel 11, uh, we're going to start out there. A little background for you on the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is actually a collection and an arrangement of 150 prayers from God's people. Uh, The Jewish people actually wrote many, many, many more Psalms, we know. And these Psalms are collected and arranged for a particular purpose. Um, And a couple of the purposes of the Psalms let me just kind of unpack this before we get to 2 Samuel. Psalms is a prayer book for God's people to do a couple of things. One, to encourage God's people toward covenant faithfulness, towards following God's law. And in doing so, to demonstrate hopeful expectation for the coming Messiah. And so we see these two themes of Psalms sort of woven throughout the book of psalms. We've got expectation and faithfulness. You've got obedience and longing for the coming king. And here near the middle of this book, we find Psalm 51 that is a particularly famous psalm where David, King David, is pouring himself out before God and confessing some particularly nasty sins. So we're going to get there to David's response. But before we do that, let's look at 2 Samuel 11. In 2 Samuel 11, at this point in the history of Israel, David is achieving incredible success. Between David and Solomon, we have kind of the apex pinnacle of the kingdom of Israel. And so it says in the chapters leading up to this, that God has made a covenant with David. Uh, God is giving David rest on all sides from his enemies. And so David, militarily speaking, is beasting up on the land of Canaan and providing Israel's security and safety from its enemies at this time. And then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and something particularly strange happens. So read with me in verse one. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, that is the capital city of the Ammonites. But David remained in Jerusalem. Literally the Hebrew there, the phrasing is David sat at home. And so what the author is trying to do for us is to establish attention. Wait, 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 wait a minute. David, just a chapter ago, you were the one leading the armies. You were the one winning the victories over and over and over again. Chapters full of the victories of David over the enemies. Of Israel, and now David, you're sitting at home. Wait a minute, why? What's going on? And while it doesn't, while the text doesn't explicitly say that this act in and of itself was sinful, what we are made to take from this is that when we give fertile ground to sinful attitudes and behaviors, we should not at all be surprised by the results. Okay, so let's put that in our own context. Are you prone to alcoholism or substance abuse and yet you are constantly surrounding yourselves with people that do not condemn that behavior but give license and praise to that behavior but endorse that behavior? Are you, uh, are you prone to outbursts of anger against your spouse and your kids and yet you consistently establish Expectations on them that no human being could ever uphold, or you're negligent to communicate those expectations, uh, reasonable or unreasonable, to them. And so when they don't meet them or they aren't communicated and that fractures your relationship, you tend to burst out. Are you addicted to pornography? And yet you constantly find yourself late at night where your willpower is low with a device or a TV in front of your face, in front of your fingertips. Are you tempted to cheat on your spouse and yet you are constantly frequenting the desk of a coworker of the opposite sex and engaging in flirtatious behavior and, in, and just encouraging that infidelity in your own heart when we create fertile ground for sinful attitudes and behaviors, we should not at all be surprised at the results. And the results are in, starting in verse two. So it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uriah the Hittite is not, it's relatively unknown to us at this time, but in 2 Samuel later on and in Chronicles as well, you're gonna figure out that Uriah the Hittite is a very well-known figure. He is one of 37 men called David's mighty men. And David's mighty men have been with him since the days in which David was on the run from King Saul. David was living in caves. David was fearing for his life. And Chronicles tells us that at that time, some men came to him, the mighty men. And from that point forward, they were David's closest friends, most trusted confidants, imminently faithful to Israel and their king and their accounts, their deeds are accounted with great praise. I mean, these are men of integrity and renown and valor and Uriah is one of them. And so when this messenger comes to David and says, David, I, I, think, that's, I think that's Bathsheba. I think that's Uriah's wife, okay? David should have turn tail, and run the other direction. And yet, the next verse tells us with cold indifference what happens. And David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house. This is not, this is nothing for David, but a night of pleasure, and then he sends her away. And I, I, I want to be careful here. We don't while this, while David's sin begins with lust and adultery, it gets so much worse. This is not only a sermon on sexual immorality and sexual purity. While it is that, David's sin runs far deeper and we're going to get there, okay? Okay. So David, instead of repenting of his sin the very next morning or not even indulging in his sin in the first place, David now tries to cover it up and you know the rest of this story, or you might. David brings Uriah home. He ostensibly asks Uriah how the fighting is going and how the men are doing. And he tells Uriah, you know what? You've been working so hard. Man, you've been just at the front lines in battle. You are killing it for the sake of Israel and your king. Go home and have a night, nice, enjoy the night with your wife. And David wakes up the next morning. He sent Uriah off. He gets up. He goes to get the paper. And Uriah is asleep at the front door of the king's house, it says, with all of the rest of the servants. And David says, what are you doing? And Uriah's response is, how can I enjoy rest when the Ark of the Covenant is in, tents, is in a tent and, they, and the men of Israel, the soldiers of Israel are out at war? So he stays at David's house instead of going home with his wife. And the sheer integrity of this man, again, should have stopped David in his tracks, but it doesn't. He gets Uriah drunk that night at a party, and even a drunk Uriah is more faithful to God than a sober David. He stays out in front of the king's house yet again. Um, and when David can't entice Uriah to make this look like something um, You know, uh, permissible, David takes matters into his own hands and he sends Uriah back out to the front lines and he tells Joab, the commander of the armies, another one of the mighty men, I want you to put Uriah at the front with the fiercest fighting and when you push up to the wall, when the archers are in range, draw back. And David has Uriah killed. May not be on his, uh, may not be a direct, he didn't stab the knife, but the blood is on his hands. And David, it says, brings Bathsheba into his house, takes her as his own wife. And commentators agree, generally agree that this was probably so fast, probably so fast that the people of Israel might not have thought that anything unsavory was going on here. Just wow, David, such an honorable man. Man, look at what, for, he, for this sweet widow, he just took her into his own house. What a guy, David, man. And it says, months go by, and David thinks that all is well. And enter the prophet Nathan in chapter 12. Nathan tells a parable to David. He says, David, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling with something recently. See if you can help me out with this. Uh, there's a rich man, and there's a poor man. And the rich man has a great deal of sheep. And goats, he's got flocks and flocks. And there's a poor man. And he's got one little ewe lamb. And he loves it. It eats from his hand. Uh, It sits at the table. It's like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, David. And the rich man, instead of slaughtering one of his own lambs to feed to his guests, he slaughters the one lamb that the poor man had. David, what do you think about that? What do you think about the character of the rich man And David, months later, is incensed, blinded to his own hypocrisy and says, as the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. But I want you to see ourselves in David's story. I want for you to see how much easier it is to recognize wickedness in someone else than in ourselves. David is. Is, and David actually goes far and above the requirements of the Mosaic law. He does identify that that man should repay that, the poor man fourfold. He should give back four sheep for the one sheep that he took from the poor man. And that is the law. That was the law, the Mosaic law at the time. But David says that man deserves not just to give the four sheep back. He deserves to die. And Nathan says, David, you're the man. You're the man. And it's at that point that David pens Psalm 51. So let's turn over there. And I'm gonna read the first six verses and then we'll come back and we'll kind of break it down verse by verse. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David opens up this psalm by saying, have mercy on me, O God, according to what? According to something that God has already declared himself to be. In Exodus 34, when God is giving Moses the 10 commandments, he says, the Lord, your God is compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So David says, essentially, God, according to who you have already said that you are to me, blot out my sin. And he exhausts the language of sin in the Hebrew language. He uses three different words. You can see them. All of them presume an absolute standard of perfection. Let's go verse, uh, point by point. Transgression, this implies a rebellion against a fighting against that standard. And so David says, God, if you've got a list of people that are rebelling against you, scrub my name off of that list. I don't want to be on, blot it out. I don't want to be on that list anymore. I don't want to be in rebellion against you anymore. Wash me from my iniquity. And iniquity carries the connotation of a perversion or a a twisting of an absolute standard. And that word, wash me, it's literally launder me. Like you're busting out the lye soap, you got the washboard and you're scrubbing, man. And it's got this idea that it is a soiled garment. David essentially says, I have made a mess of my situation. I need for you to wash me. And and, uh, again, the connotation is that it's going to have to happen. over and over and over again for him to be cleansed from his iniquity. And finally, sin, cleanse me from my sin. And the idea here carries the the picture of a mark of perfection, a bullseye that David has missed. And he says, cleanse me from that. There the idea is ritual purification. And so he's saying, wash, cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me if you have ever practiced genuine repentance to God or to another, you know that that understanding is always in front of you. That realization of your own fallenness, your own wickedness, your own fault in light of the holiness of God. And I'm not saying that we are going to be sort of inconsolably depressed or beating ourselves to death with our sin. Do not hear me say that because that is not godly repentance. What I am saying is there is ever an understanding that God is holy and we are not. My sin is ever before me. And contrast that with someone who is only uh, sorrowful. Eh, They feel bad about what they've done. And you know that person that has apologized to, some, to you for something, or you have apologized to them for something, maybe like a week ago, or five weeks ago, or five months ago, and then you go and do it again, and then you say, No, 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 no. I apologized for that months ago. We're way past that. Never mind that I'm still doing that thing, right? That's not godly repentance. Against you, you only. Have I sinned, O Lord? And this should jump out to us as the most provocative, offensive line in this Psalm because the last time I checked, David's sin was developing a body count, right? David says against you and you only have I sinned and I can only imagine you know, Uriah's family or Bathsheba off to the side going, uh, excuse me? Against you and you only? How about me? I got a dead husband. I got a kid on the way. Against you only? But David doesn't deny that he has sinned against Uriah or Bathsheba or all of the people of Israel for his terrible representation as king. He just says that compared to the offense against a holy God, all other offenses pale to nothing. Some of us are under the impression that if no one is coming to us angry or wounded, banging on our doors with offenses, that we're okay. That our sin is managed and that no one is hurting. And David says, that is not the case. There is no such thing as a sin without offense because the holiness of God is always offended in our sinfulness and our fallenness and our wickedness. And all other offenses pale in comparison. So David says in verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. What we are meant to be To be reminded of here is Exodus, and the hyssop plant was something that was used to brush the to uh, brush the blood of a spotless lamb over the doorpost of the people of Israel uh, when the Passover uh, happened, when the angel of death came to the people of uh, Egypt. Excuse me, uh, in the last of the judgments on Pharaoh. And what David is saying is I need righteousness to cover me. I need to be purged from my iniquity because it is deep. It is not just, a, it's not just something that I carry with me. It is inside of me. And this is one of the central messages of scripture. You want to know what it is? It is it, that sin is the most malignant evil in the history of the world, and it is in every single one of us. It's in the best of us. King David is called a man after God's own heart, and yet look at the actions of David. He's saying, no, it's deep. I've got to get it out Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me, excuse me, uphold me with a willing spirit. Notice every one of those petitions to God is God and God alone working. Nowhere does David says, I'm working, I'm trying, God, to create in me a clean heart. Nowhere does David says, man, God, if you just give me a few more weeks, I will have restored the joy of my salvation to you and I can come to you. No, so often we want to clean ourselves up. We want to try and purge ourselves and we'll take two weeks or two months or two years. And until then, we cannot go to God and God says, that's not how this works. The language there, create in me, that draws us back to Genesis when the spirit of God is hovering over the chaos and the darkness of uncreated earth and bringing life and beauty and harmony into creation. David says, God, only you can do this. He is petitioning God to hover over the darkness and the chaos in his own situation, in his own life, saying, breathe life into this because only you can do this. I've got nothing in me. I need you to create in me out of nothing, a clean heart, oh God. I love the hymn, the Come Ye Sinners. You guys probably have sung it, heard it, but that line, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. So David is saying, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I am not enjoying this. I don't feel your presence. We hear this a lot in the Psalms, right? I remember what it was like to lead the people of God in glad singing up to the house of God. I know what it's like to feel the joy of your salvation. Restore that joy to me. But in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. You always unanimous throughout the pages of the Psalms, even in the darkest moments of God's people, there is always a presumption that God will be faithful to restore, that it is not, that that darkness and valley and mire is not the end of that person's story, that God will be faithful to restore to them the joy of their salvation. And so what David is demonstrating to us is Repentance. Now, I know that nowhere in this psalm is the word repentance. In the Hebrew, uh, the word is shub. Okay, say that. That's that's a fun word, shub. Um, That word carries with it the idea of a turn or a return or a restoration Um, In the Greek, if we're reading this out of Septuagint, we would not find the Greek word metanoia. It wouldn't be there, but it means to change one's mind and particularly to adopt God's mind for a particular way or a particular event or circumstance. Neither one of those words is here. But it's undeniable to me that David is demonstrating this practice of repentance. And repentance is something that we are going to have to make a practice of. Most of us think that we are managing our sinfulness. And the Bible says that you do not manage sin. Genesis 4, verse 7. Sin is crouching at the door. It desires to dominate you. Okay? You don't put on the gloves and get in the ring and go toe to toe with sin. That's not your job. John 8, 34, Jesus echoes the sentiment. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So if we want to take our sin seriously, we are going to have to practice repentance. And I wanna suggest to you today that there are two things that will prevent you from practicing repentance Um, Charles Spurgeon calls it the throne of grace. You will never practice repentance if you don't believe that God is on a throne. So let's talk about that first. I think a lot of us live as functional atheists where the Bible is inspirational, no more so than Shakespeare or Rocky Balboa. Some of y'all are like, oh my gosh, he just compared Shakespeare to Rocky. But little, have you ever seen the first one? I mean, it's inspirational, right? <laughs> inspirational, but no more so than any other classic work of literature or fiction. Probably chocked full of errors, probably for a bygone culture. And so the God of that book then is really, if he exists, and I'll assent that perhaps he does, he is really just, another being among beings, another creature among creatures, not worthy for me to bring my sin before and to prostrate myself before the throne of. And I would suggest to you, uh, while I am sentimental, I understand the language of God as our friend. He is a friend of sinners or uh, he is certainly Emmanuel with us. He has come down, he is near, he's our refuge. And there's this intimate language of God as Abba, Father. And yet he is also almighty, most holy God, worthy of all of our praise. So you cannot practice repentance until you understand that God is the ultimate authority who has every every ounce of prerogative to command the way in which we live out our lives. He is on a throne. And some of us uh, while that should be a little bit disconcerting, Hebrews 12:6 says that the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives so while there is no condemnation while our sins are forgiven there may be discipline when we are not walking in repentance before him and this i don't i, I don't have to like this makes sense right like i don't have to tell you that there may be ongoing consequences for unrepentant sin. If I'm, if I'm uh, running around on my wife, God doesn't have to strike me with a lightning bolt. My wife is going to strike me, okay? <laughs> Things are going to go badly for me. And we see that. David says that so, so much as that in Psalm, in, in verse, uh, verse eight, let the bones that you have broken rejoice, There may be rejoicing that happens alongside the ongoing effects of sin. Is there forgiveness? You bet there is. That doesn't mean that there won't still be consequences. Nathan tells David that. He says, David, your sin is taken from you, but the child that Bathsheba bore to you will die. You will never practice repentance if you don't believe that God is on a throne. You will never practice repentance if you don't believe that God is full of grace, full of grace. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day and he was beside himself. He said, Joel, I, I don't, I can't kick my, the sin that I'm walking in. I've lived with it for a long time. I don't, feel, I I feel repentant. I feel stricken with grief. I, I, but I can't, I can't separate myself from it. I can't remove it from my life. What do I do? And he was doubting his own salvation. And I told him that that guilt and that shame, Well, I can't tell him Well, I can't look into his heart and say whether or not he was ever saved in the first place. I can't judge that only God can do that. That guilt over, that shame over your sin is at least evidence to me of the Holy Spirit working on your heart and convicting your heart of the ways in which you have wandered from him and drawing you back to himself. John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David and the psalmist in general praised God, knew so much less about the mercy of God than we do. And yet sometimes it just feels like they praise him so much more deeply than I am capable of. But we know one thing, I know something and you know something about the mercy of God that David did not know. You wanna know what it is? David says in verse nine through 11, hide not your face from my sin. And then in verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. David says, hide your face from my sin, don't hide your face from me. And we know this in the, re- in the interactions that we have with, our, with friends and loved ones. When someone has wronged you, you have a choice. You can overlook the wrongdoing, you can forgive and overlook the wrongdoing of that person and you can turn your face to your friend. Or you can overlook, you can focus in on the wrongdoing and you cannot be in fellowship with that person. You have a choice. And David says, don't hide your face from me. Hide your face from my sin. And what we know now that David didn't know is that some 2,000 years ago, Christ himself hung on the cross and looked up at the Father. And for the first time, In the history of eternity, the father did not look back at the son. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know why. You and I know why. The father turns his face from his only son so that he can turn his face from our sin. He turns his face from the son so that Romans five twenty one can be true in our lives, so that just as sin reigned, reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus himself bore wrath for us so that we can enjoy the grace of God. so that we can have a new heart, a new mind, a new spirit created in us that will never, ever, ever be cast from his presence. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this truth would go down deep in our lives today. God, you are enthroned over all of creation, but you are enthroned in grace for those of us that claim your name, for anyone that claims your name. Father, would you create out of nothing a clean heart in us? Would you restore us, renew a right spirit with us? Would you cause us to remember that you are on a throne, but that you are full of grace? We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.